that's a great place to say, okay, what is the company worth? Because a lot of the times, I mean, let's just say that the business owners like to think that their businesses are worth $10 million when if you start penciling it all out, you're like, well, not quite. And then having that paper version of, okay, what can the company substantiate? What is the true valuation worth? And if I was going to sell it, how much should I sell it for, for an outside person? Because there might be a different higher value to sell it to an outside party, like a venture capital fund versus an internal employee because well thanks anthony lewis uh you are the senior manager at first cpa group which is uh, a um, comprehensive uh, tax planning and uh, preparation firm tax services firm out of hamilton ohio uh so glad to have you here on the money alchemist podcast podcast. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Ben Jones with National Wealth Management Group. And and I'm Brent Gargano with Infinite Wealth Planning. So this is part of a, a, a series where we're talking about um, small business owners and uh, the different uh, things they can do to optimize their, their business, whether it be uh, growth, uh, finding good and retain. Today's topic is finding good labor and, and, and retaining talent. Um, you know, how to, how to how to reduce costs or optimize costs, increase revenues. So this, you know, we've got a lot here to unpack, and we're very glad to have your expertise here because this is uh, definitely not something that you know. Brent and I are knowledgeable enough to be dangerous, but we're, we're we would not go so far as to call us a, an expert. So we're looking forward to uh, picking your brain on these things because uh, as business owners, you know, they and they impact us as well as a variety of clients that we all serve. Um, so uh, with that. Without further ado, I, I do want you to formally introduce yourself. Maybe talk a little bit about your background, where you come from, and you know what brought you to Kirsch, and uh, maybe explain Kirsch a little bit and, and what you guys do and the type of work that you do for clients. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Um, so I've been in public accounting for over twenty years, and I have had the luxury of working with many different business clients. So I've worked with manufacturers, construction, uh, logistics companies service entities. So I've been able to see a lot of different businesses and I was blessed enough to uh, move to Ohio about two and a half years ago and I ran into this great group of Kerr CPA group who uh, really sold it as we're different. And I hear that all the time, like, yeah, we're different, but what does that really mean? And it's a holistic approach to servicing clients and being part of their team and really being that advisor and that's totally different because a lot of accountants these days tend to just focus on compliance. And what I do is I really want to meet with my clients on a regular basis and have strategic meetings, set up goals, and really help them get to the next level of whatever that goal may be. Maybe it's to position themselves to sell. Maybe it's to you know have succession planning to get out of the business at some point in the future. Maybe it's just to grow the revenues. Whatever their goals are, we are very heavily involved in the team and bringing up professionals such as yourselves and working with lawyers and other consultants to really service the client holistically and work together as a team um, on a ongoing basis, not just once a year, and be way more proactive. Really try to look into the future and see where their goals are and make sure they're headed that way and help get them there with the right team. Yeah, it definitely goes far and above your your traditional vision of what an accountant is. You just think it's like one person, you know, maybe with an, an assistant with just a pile of papers in an office, and all they do is they help you uh, one one time a year, you know, from January to April, and that's it. And you know, you don't think, well, maybe my accountant can help me, 
you know, grow my revenues, or maybe my account can help me, you know, find and retain uh, a good talent. And, and uh, you know, so you, so Kirsch and you specifically with Kirsch, your role is to uh, work with uh, business owners to cover all aspects of their, uh, not only their accounting needs, but uh, basically just they're, they're almost like you're an outsourced CFO in a way. So uh, very, very interesting. And I, I'm excited to dive into the topic of labor today because that's definitely something that's always in the news and um, it, it, most of it is um, recently has been just difficulty in find, finding good people and holding on to them. So, you know, um, Brent, you had a really good question to open up with here and that was uh, what, what don't, what, as business owners, what don't we know about attracting and retaining employees? Oh boy, there's so many topics here that you know we can get into, but I think that one of the biggest things about attracting and retaining employees is holistic. Um, so, for instance, benefit packages and other things other than salary, because most of the time when you're hiring anybody, they they tend to focus just on top line. Uh, how much am I going to get paid? But there's so many other aspects to retaining and attracting people that can be uh, benefits such as health insurance, 401k, um, profit sharing plans. There's just a holistic approach of things that attract people, but more importantly, retain them because turnover is such a costly part of the business right now that if you're not really looking at all these different aspects, you're going to be kind of missing out on the best ways to promote your business and really attract the right kind of talent by having these set up, especially... Um, in a competitive market where unemployment is very low right now. And as people have mentioned, it's hard to find good people. Well, I'd like to chime in here. So, you know, as and maybe take a step back. So let me talk just a little bit for like what I've generally seen with my client base and the life of uh, maybe a CPA relationship. So, you know, just to paint the picture, what will often happen is you'll have somebody that gets introduced to a CPA, which I think m- maybe the average person lumps that as one thing. It, you know, realistically, even within the term CPA, there's a, there's a lot to that, a lot of different ele- you know angles that you can take. But they, you know, somebody starts a business, they've got a CPA they've been working with, they grow their business, you know, and eventually. And I think what you were highlighting before is that what Kirsch looks to do is to really partner with businesses that are at this point where they are more established and help with a consulting, maybe on a different level. So can we maybe talk about, like from a lot of the clients that 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 we work with, they might be businesses that have maybe outgrown their current CPA relationship, and now they're trying to figure out how to take their business to the next level. So one of the things that I'm curious about related to attracting and retaining employees is like, when you're a business in growth mode, you're a business owner, and up to that point, you've been handling a lot of the tasks, you know, and and, and how do you start thinking about hiring employees? You know, what are the first steps to, to starting down that pathway? And then maybe we can start to think about the evolution of a business as it gets bigger and then you have to retain those employees and then eventually you have to transition the business potentially to those employees. What do you think what do you think on that? Well, I think that the first thing that any business owner has to do is start, you know, 
focusing on the key areas of the business that'll get them the most growth. So whatever they're spending their time on really needs to be focused on their strengths, such as um, sales. A lot of times, business owners are really great at getting sales and stuff, but they have to wear so many hats in the beginning. And as they progress down that path, they start to get into HR, payroll, hiring, firing, you know, and their skills are very well-rounded, but as they develop, they want to go and get team members to help them do the functions that are not the most valuable for their time. So focusing on growing the revenues, getting in front of their customers, um, training the teams might be a business owner's focus at the next level, but they want to then go find a team member or an outsourced uh, party to help them with their HR, payroll needs and other things, or hire someone for that position so that they don't have to keep managing that. And, and how do you know when to do that? It's different for everybody, but I think that there's just a time when they're spending so many hours in the office and they have a revenue area of where they have now more than, say, 20 or 30 employees where they can't manage it themselves personally anymore. There could be a point where they're just spending so much time in the payroll and HR that's taking them away from sales and being with the customers and training the key people that are their managers to you know keep pushing the business and grow it, that they'll have to kind of determine that for themselves. But once they realize how much time they're spending in that function versus what they could be spending that time in, that's usually a key indicator that, hey, maybe I should go and hire someone or at least look into outsourcing HR and payroll and talking to some groups out there that can actually provide that service for them so that they're not having to spend as much time doing that function. And the focus on revenue growth makes sense for a lot of businesses, but it, it that, that first employee you hire um, generally is going to be, and my, my experience is going to be kind of a, a person that can wear a lot of hats. It's not just focused on growth, but can also uh, complement the, the owner and administration as well. Um, so let's let's talk about so. Let, Let's say the bit the since the the type of employee you need is so specific to the business, I think it's more worthwhile to talk about, um, you know, recognizing when you need that help, and that help is obviously your if you're pulling your hair out as a business owner, <laughs> that should be your sign uh, that you need to you need to hire someone. Um, but how do you bring someone in, interview them, make sure that they're a good fit? and then re more importantly, retain them. Because you mentioned turnover costs earlier, and that is a major issue, because it's more, I've often heard the statistic, it's more costly to lose an employee than it is to train them. Um, so touch on that a little bit. So let's say we've recognized we need an employee, how do we hire them, one? And two, how do we make sure that that hiring process and the, the compensation, the benefits packages we offer them are enough to retain them long term. Well, as far as like the hiring aspect of it, <clears throat> you should really have some formal training or have someone that has experience doing that. I personally do not, you know, necessarily hire and do interviewing myself because I'm very good at consulting. I'm very good at my CPA roles, but we have a great team. Um, of HR members and consultants that we, you know, have us help marketing to attract employees. But knowing what your target employee looks like and knowing how to sell your business to attract the right kinds of employees and the right culture is not by accident. It takes time and effort and consulting and help 
it's not just going to happen automatically, especially for business owners who are not necessarily uh, that deep into HR and um, payroll and compliance. Um, I can't speak to it much more than that, but the things that will help attract um, employees and long-term stay once you do attract that person is a multitude of things. Culture is a big one these days that we have to make sure that we're setting up our company to have a good culture with a team where they feel like there's advancement opportunities, that they're appreciated, that uh, the company is transparent with communication. Uh, having multiple benefits is now becoming a differentiator. So if you're going to get $100,000 at three different locations because in the competitive market that we're in for talent, especially in certain industry groups, it's not going to be the salary that completely sells it. Of course, it's an important aspect of it, but having additional benefits and offerings of 401k or health needs or long-term disability, short-term disability, life insurance, all these components start to build a resume of a good workplace and really selling your culture and being intentional when you do find these recruits about talking about these aspects and educating them on what benefits really mean to the people you're trying to attract because you know they're going to go out and interview with someone else. But if you do a good job of selling your company's value from a cultural standpoint, from an advancement standpoint, and the benefits package that you're offering and you educate them in the interview a little bit to say if you do go talk to other companies, you really need to gain understanding of what benefits they're offering because the holistic compensation package is something that a lot of employees who are interviewing for these jobs don't really understand. And when you're going for higher level people or people with experience in certain groups, I think this becomes a differentiator uh, as part of attracting them. And then once you do it, you have to live up to it and actually implement these systems and live up to your promises that you give. So, so oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, let me ask. So that that all said, if 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 the easiest thing for a potential or a current employee to understand is the gross number that you put on paper, that's their salary, and these benefits essentially come along with a, a perceived discount because they don't understand them as much. As a business owner, why wouldn't I just pay them more? It's that's a loaded question for sure because if you offer a benefits package, you kind of have to offer it to everyone and it's a way for you to retain the people that you have it's a way for you to try to show value but if the only thing that somebody's going to be interested in is a top line it's really hard to show the value because some people are not as knowledgeable so you do have to kind of go out of your way to explain it in a way that they can understand and how it could potentially affect their take-home pay and I mean, I'm going to be honest, a lot of people are just going to look at the top line number and that's just a problem that we have in the workplace. I don't know how to solve it necessarily unless you can really just educate them on what it means if you don't have a good health insurance plan because by the time you take home that paycheck, even if it's a higher number initial salary, if you're having to pay you know, 50% of your benefit versus someone coming 100% of your medical, that's a huge take-home difference that you're actually going to come home with more money on a lower salary if the benefits package is more complete. Yeah, so I, well, I have a good example of this. So when I used to work at Fidelity, they had a system that you could log into. It was very clear. It was right in your payroll system, and it showed you your benefits equivalent pay. You could log in, and it says, here's what you actually made, and here's what you would have made if it wasn't for the benefits packages that we pay for you. And it was a big difference. I mean, I remember looking at people. We, were all, we would talk about it. 
you know, we were, we were like, hey, you know, how, can you believe how much it would cost, you know, to have our health insurance? And and so, but it was right in your face. And I, I wouldn't have, I think the number, it was like an extra $30,000 or something a year on top of the pay. It wasn't a small number. I think it's somewhere between like 20, 30% um, in that range of like total benefits when you are looking at um, an employee's cost. So like, let's just say somebody makes 100000 a year. Typically, you're going to add another twenty-five thousand, you know, in benefits to their compensation, in a lot of companies with good benefit packages. Is that is that a general a pretty good rule of thumb generally is to expect to gross up somebody's pay by about twenty-five percent? Yeah, somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty to thirty percent, depending on your comprehensive benefits. But when a business owner is looking at you know hiring somebody and they're saying, oh, well, it's just a hundred thousand dollar employee. Well, yeah, but it's you know between payroll taxes, 401k match, you know, health insurance benefits, you're really looking at more like that $125,000 range. And they have to factor that in as they go looking for people and figuring out how many people they can afford to hire. So they're not just thinking the base salary only. They got to think about the expansion of the benefits and other training costs and other things as they look to figure out how many employees they want to add to the team. Do you happen to have the, you may not have this, so maybe, you know, but, uh, do you happen to know what percentage of, of typically a company's expenses are related to payroll? Um, it depends on your industry group. It varies. So very heavy service-based companies like professional services, usually it's about a third. Wow. So that 25% is not a small number when you're talking about a third of your of your gross. And correct? it could be all the way up to half, depending on how heavy of a service industry you are. I want to elaborate on health insurance a little bit because I think that is probably the hot button uh, issue for a lot of uh, employees out there. And I, I know firsthand a, of a lot of people that will not accept a job offer unless there's health insurance that comes along with it. And that is easily one of the most intimidating things as a business owner to, to tackle because the larger the business, the better the, the volume discount is for, for health insurance. So Let's t- let's talk a little bit about group health insurance and you know what percentage of that twenty to thirty percent of the benefits package that you're you know so again we're talking the benefits package would be twenty to thirty percent of the, the the salary or the pay and then what percentage of that is health insurance and furthermore at what point does it make sense for an employer to cost effectively get a group health plan? You know, for example, is that five employees? Is that 10 employees? Is that 50? At what point does it become cost effective versus just paying a subsidy for someone's healthcare.gov policy? So, because that's a, that's a strategy I've seen other people use is just buying, you know, here, here's $500 a month for to go buy your own individual plan. Good luck. And that doesn't seem like a great option, honestly. So, what do you think about that? Um, well, if. If it's a good health insurance plan, it's a large portion of that 25% for sure. Yeah. And um, it really depends on, you know, the kind of plans you have. I've seen self-insured plans. I've seen uh, PPO plans, full coverages. I've seen high deductible plans. I am not a health insurance expert. So we partner with a lot of brokers who will do some consulting with you. And we've worked with these companies in the past where they'll come in and analyze your business. And whether you have five employees, 50 employees, 500 employees, there's really a specific set of insurance that gets the best coverage for your buck uh, at each different level. 
but you really, really want to reach out to a consultant who does this full time, like an insurance broker or a health insurance benefit administrator that can say, okay, uh, it's great if you only have 10 employees to get into a group plan because then you can share that cost over a bigger base. But once you get to 50 people, maybe you can start negotiating your own rates because now you're big enough. And then once you have a big enough plan, you might even think about some self-insured, uh, sorry, self-funded insurance where you have your own separate entity that is doing the claims and they're running their own um, entity to contain their own employees because they have found that there's a cost savings there in the long run rather than paying big insurance companies. The best advice is, is to work with one of these brokers and hopefully your CPA works with some of those um, such as we do at Curse where we have great networks of people that we rely on and when a client comes to me with that need I don't try to answer it for them I immediately go and reach out to my experts that I know have done good for our clients in the past. And that's part of your holistic approach is that when you recognize a need for that you make that introduction so that way the business owner is not you know floundering around on Google trying to find some, you know, trustworthy insurance broker, because I imagine there's a lot of charlatans out there. Um, now, I'm, I'm noticing a theme here. Uh, you know, when it comes to hiring, you were you said, you know, find an expert like you mentioned, Kirsch has their dedicated hiring team and HR team. So, you know, you're, you're in a way um, outsourcing to some experts. And then when it comes to health insurance, outsource to experts. So c getting good information, high quality information is definitely a must to put together the right benefit, to hire the right people and put together the right benefits package. And and the majority, I would, I, I'm just interpreting for you here, out of that 20 to 30%, definitely more than half is going to be going to health insurance. Now, how important is it to have health insurance? Did you say that is an absolute must, you can't go without it? Or maybe you can eke by without it and still hire? I think that it's a must. Here's why. When I have healthy employees, I'm going to get more productivity out of them. Mm -hmm. And when they have peace of mind that their children are safe and they're going to be covered if something happens with them, that's a huge retaining uh, bonus because I don't have to stress out about it. If I have a cut rate and plan or I don't have the right hospitals in network, I don't want to have to think about it in a time of crisis or need. I myself have gone through that and I've luckily always had good insurance, but I didn't always realize the true value of that until I had a sick child. And I really had to spend a lot of time in the hospital systems and working with the insurance companies and paying medical bills. Having a not good service provider or not great insurance, once those moments happen, it is clutch to know that you have a good support system oh, and a good sure. policy. Yeah. Um, last question, and then we can move on to the other benefits because there's a lot more than just health insurance. I just think it happens to be the biggest line item. So it's the elephant in the room that we should address. But what percentage, cause, cause not when I, when I've worked for um, companies that provide as an employee provided health insurance for me, I would ha still have to pay part of the premium. So what percentage is normal for the employer to cover sub to subsidize and, and what, versus the portion that passes on to the employee. Do you, do you have a, a stat in mind for that? Um, it really varies. I've actually worked with companies that if you're single, they'll pay one percentage. If you have a family, they'll pay another percentage. And it really varies by industry where I've seen a lot of them cover 50% of a family plan and 100% of a single you know, or married couple's plan. But this all still goes back to what's your structure of your company? How big are you? Um, what are you financially able to take on and for what rates? Because it all comes down to the cost benefit of the dollar. 
I don't have a specific ratio that works for every company, but typically I do see, you know, at least most of the businesses are covering half of the costs okay. in a good plan. And then you can actually, you know, adjust it as you need and time goes on. And as you grow, you might add more to it. And I'd still work with somebody who's kind of in that no and make sure that you're getting the most value out of your dollar for whatever the plan is you have in place. Now, out of curiosity, and I wonder, back to your Fidelity example, Brent, I wonder if Fidelity gave you your full pay and and they said, we're not going to subsidize health insurance, but here it is if you want to buy it. I wonder how many, what the uptake and the health insurance would be. If if they gave you the option to essentially take the higher pay or the or buy the health insurance, you know, that'd be that'd be interesting. I'm not looking. That's a that, that's a uh, what a question that doesn't rhetorical need an question. rhetorical question. There we go. <laughs> yeah, I think there's some uh, a philosophical debate yeah. on the merits of giving employees more control. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, used to be companies had pensions that gave the employees the least amount of control, Mm -hmm. but it maybe gave them the most amount of uh, consistency and financial security. The 401k came in as a cop-out for companies to be able to push that risk to the employee. And, you know, as an investment advisor and somebody that's, you know, thoughtful with how I handle my money, I like that. I I, I actually believe that I'm going to be able to do better than maybe the company's pension would do over time. But I can tell you as somebody that's seen this on the whole, um, you know, if you leave people to their own devices, sometimes it can backfire. Oh, yeah. So you have to be willing to make crazy decisions. Well, so many people live paycheck to paycheck that they're not going to be savvy enough to be able to save enough for retirement. And a lot of people, you know, the base, you know, common manufacturer worker isn't going to be savvy enough to know that I need $3 million to retire on or whatever that number is, how much do I have to save now to get to that end goal? And that's why I see a lot of companies will bring in like a 401k service provider and come talk to their employees and say, hey, I will sit down and you know go over an individual plan with you guys to explain how important this is and how much you need to save to get to a number. And now they have all these website tools and things to help educate some of the not as informed folks on how to take control of those 401ks. Yeah, well, that, isn't that a perfect transition to the next topic, which is uh, retirement plans? Um, so we, there's a whole variety of them out there. What's the most common type that you see? I typically see a lot of 401k plans where they have uh, some sort of a safe harbor match of like 3% because it's pretty easy to implement. Um, there are some compliance things that you have to be careful of, and you should be working with a professional that is in the space of you know servicing those 401k plans just to make sure you don't get yourself into any compliance issues and roll this out universally at your company because you have to treat it the same across all your employee base. Um, but that's probably the most common one I see, especially with the 3% safe harbor because it's the simplest. So you don't have these complex matching schemes. You just match 3% of their qualified compensation. The business gets a deduction for it that they can, you know, take out of their business income. And it's a good benefits plan to maybe help motivate their employees to, you know, save a little bit. And I've seen them where you have to match at least a certain percentage of their pay that they contribute. So that way, like we might say, hey, up to 3% of your pay will match 3%. Uh, Those are common as well. And it helps them, you know, get more employees onto the plan and actually start saving some uh, kind of forcefully in those kind of a plan to then also get a match that'll also benefit them. 
can an employer um, choose different matching options? So let's say, let's say like what what are they required to match, if if any at all, and what's the maximum that they can match, and then what kind of flexibility that do they have in between those two numbers? Well, they they have different options. You don't have to match anything um, as long as your plan documentation and whatever you're implementing with your 401k team says there are different options you can have and different plans you can implement. Um, you can also then match the safe harbor, which is the 3%, which is a simple one. But they have all kinds of different options out there where you can have different structures where um, you can roll in, a, oh, what do they call it? Not profit sharing, but a discretionary contribution from different companies and stuff. But you just have to know what you're able to do within the plan that you set up with your 401k and stick to that compliance because you have to make sure that you are following the guidelines and the rules of the 401k and you can get yourself in trouble if you do not follow it or you don't have a regulation group to help you keep in compliance with say like filing requirements and top heavy plans and there's a lot of things that go into them. Yeah, and and, and I, just to jump in there, so I, um, I've heard you use the term safe harbor a couple of times, safe harbor match. Can you explain a little bit about what a safe harbor matches and, and why that might be something that's that's used and um, what what happens if you what is the alternative to a safe harbor plan yeah so um, I, I kind of used to audit these uh, employee benefit plans and I had to do the Department of Labor quite a bit back in my career and a safe harbor plan is basically a plan where everybody just can get three percent of their qualifying wages as an entire bucket of employees so everybody just will get it um, if they meet the requirements. There might be vesting periods. There might be you have to be working for so long before you qualify to get this match. A lot of companies will say one year of service or whatever. But you have flexibility on when you set this up with your 401k provider, you set those terms. Like there could be a five-year vesting period where you get 20% per year vested until you've gotten through five years. And then you're 100% vested into your plan and all your matches. And you have flexibility on the type of matchings that you want to set up. I've seen some where the employer won't match unless the employee contributes so much of their pay towards the plan and then they'll match up to half of that, up to like 6% or something. So you have some flexibility in what you set up there and then you can do discretionary contributions to 401k plans based on your plan documents as well. But you have to make sure that's all built into your plan before you roll any of these out and you're working with somebody who knows the compliance side of all this. So is it... Is it a fair description to say that the safe harbor requirements are like minimum 401k requirements so that you can avoid additional complexity and compliance testing that's associated with having a plan that doesn't meet those safe harbor guidelines? Is that is that right? Yeah, it's definitely easier to calculate and track. Um, I have audited some where they have like a lot of commissions and they have a lot of reimbursement plans, so they scope out different wage sections and then they have these complex matching structures where you know they can't give um, based on bonuses a match those are all very complex and you have to track all that and then you have to know all your segments of your wages and it can be burdensome if you have a team you know internally that's doing all your payroll 
and trying to track all this stuff and stay in compliance themselves. That's why I often try to refer in experts that are a full service 401k team that is outside your company because they know all the rules. This is all they do. They do these, you know, plans and they structure them to your company needs. So based on the amount of money that you can contribute, based on the size of your employee base, depending on, you know, if it's mostly family members that you work with to make sure they maximize the amount that they can contribute in the plan and not be in violation of these compliance rules. Those consultants are invaluable to setting them up because if you set up the wrong 401k plan and you don't track it properly, you can find yourself in, you know, a compliance kind of mess. But so, but if your company, if you have a company and you're looking to establish, you know, your first 401k plan, you're a small business, you don't want to take on a lot of administrative complexity above and beyond what's absolutely necessary. It sounds like a safe harbor 401k plan is a much uh, somewhat of a templated approach to um, manage, you know, a lot of the additional complexity that, that might be worthwhile, you know, at, at the point, like, like you said earlier, as your company scales and, and you have the budget to have departments to handle these things and so on. It's the easy button plan. Yeah. 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 But it's not the one size fits all solution. Yeah. Well, um, so 401k plan is one type of benefit, but I've heard of all sorts of others. Um, you know, I've heard, um, SEP IRAs, uh, simple IRAs, 403Bs, uh, profit sharing. Um, so, I mean, we don't have to go into detail on a lot of those, but um, what, as a business owner, probably what they want to get to is like bottom line. You know, what should I be contributing to my employees to retain them? So even though that we, we've you've mentioned that you don't have to provide a match, I would imagine that probably not the best route to go if you're trying to retain good talent. So what um, amount should a business owner target in their mind say, okay, well, this percentage of my employees' compensation, I should I should dedicate towards a uh, retirement plan. So we're, we're back to that 20 to 30%. Let's say half of that's health insurance or, or maybe probably two-thirds, I would imagine. What percentage of that should be allocated towards the retirement plan when whatever form that that takes um <laughs> it's my favorite answer it depends um a lot of companies really don't even see a lot of value because their employee base might not understand retirement they might not um see the value in that and they'd rather just get paid more so this is again one of those things that is very subjective to the business you're in to who you're working with to your em- employee base um it's Usually I I do like to see a 3% match and I do want to contribute a portion of my benefits package towards that of, you know, if I was going to just guess a number, I'd probably say like 10% to add the base and give them the tools and have something in place where they can get educated because now I'm providing value to their lives by saying, hey, you should really think about saving. You don't have to participate, but rolling it out is a huge benefit in so. If I if I can uh, share a story, so you know I'm I work with a, a, a small construction company, and the and the employees do not get any sort of retirement plan. They they deal with a lot of turnover. Um, the the business owner's rationale is well they just don't they wouldn't value it anyway. Um, now, I tend to not I'm, I'm not sympathetic to that view. Um, I think, well, at minimum, you should offer, you know, some form of incentive 
uh, some form of retirement plan. I think it would help. The, on the opposite side of the spectrum, um, I have a family member that work for a, a, a large construction company. It's privately owned, but they, 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 they run what's called an ESOP plan. And it is, man, they get it. It doesn't matter if you're a journeyman or if you're a foreman or if you're in the C-suite. You're in the ESOP. And I'm working with a, uh, not, so this family member referred someone that's retired to me. I mean, this, this guy's, you know, he's been swinging hammers his whole life. His whole life he's been swinging hammers and he's retiring a millionaire part of the ESOP plan. Can you imagine that? And he's worked for that company his whole life because he knew I'm participating, you know? And I think that that is uh, one of the secrets to this company's success. I'm trying to be vague because I don't want to give away the company. I probably right. could. It wouldn't matter, but I don't. Well, and and, you know, and an let's example. talk a little, let's, let's mm-hmm. dive a little bit deeper on that. You know, what is the value of having an employee at your company that stays for 20 to 40 years mm. over somebody that yeah. leaves within five. Is, is there, you know, is that even something that could be quantified? Well, um, it's pretty hard to put a value on a key team member, but I can quantify what it costs for them to leave. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially if you have someone like with that five to 10 year experience within your organization, who's a key team member who trains, who, you know, helps, keep jobs on task and really is a productive member. If you lose one of them, I mean, you're probably talking between two and three times their salary to replace and train somebody. And that's very, very costly. And not only that, but then trying to find a replacement for them is very difficult in the labor market that we're in today. So it might take you months to go find another person with that same qualification. And then you're down that time period where, the business owners having to step in to do that job. And what does that cost a company? I mean, their time is very valuable. And if they don't have the person in that position anymore, somebody's got to step in. And usually there's not a lot of other qualified people within the organization to just do that other than the business owner or another high level manager. And, that's and then a, they might burn out because now, you know, you're down a person for six months and they're working double. And that becomes very costly. So being able to retain somebody is very important. And more importantly, it really helps the business owner be able to focus on what they need to be focused on and use their best level of um, knowledge and expertise to keep growing the company. Well, and, let, and let's take this one step further. What happens, what, what happens if that key employee that you didn't manage to retain, how often do you see those key employees start com- competitors? Oh, all the time. Especially if a business owner doesn't like identify their key team members and give them an incentive for advancement or... Sometimes the business owner in their mind will even think, oh, this guy is the next the next successor yeah. of this company, but they don't communicate that properly and they don't tell them, hey, my plan in the future is to sell this company to you or to a group of key managers to say, hey, you're the next up and comers and groom them and communicate with them and train them specifically with that in mind so that they're aware of it. A lot of business owners just think in their mind, oh, they know. Like they, they know, they know how important they are, but if you're not telling them, I guarantee you that they're thinking in the back of the mind, man, uh, maybe I should start looking somewhere else. Maybe I should go start my own because I'm making this guy all this money and I'm not really getting the rewards that I deserve for it because the business owner simply isn't communicating that, that promise or that advancement career, or maybe they aren't thinking about it and they are breeding their own competition and they have to be very careful of that. Yeah. Let's zero in on that. Um, because it's, inter- it's a gr- interesting topic. So bu- business owners, this is their baby. You know, they're they're 
Yeah. This is what their, their life's work, their passion. So to share in on that is, is, a, is no small thing. So how do you give an, a key, how do you let a key employee in on that? Like what, what, are, what are the ways uh, that a business owner would incentivize a key employee to stay? Yeah, there's a lot of different options out there. You can um, start doling out some ownership. That's the easiest way is start offering them a buy-in or a plan to start gaining equity within the company if that's an option. Um, Other options can be a profit-sharing plan where you tie a portion of their actual income to the performance of the business. This might work better where you have a departmentalized company, for example, if there's multiple divisions and this person is leading a division um, you can actually compensate them for that division's performance and then eventually move them up to like creating a separate company where you can move that division into and they can have ownership in that company. You can do a um, stock options if you have certain types of entities. You can also, you know, just flat out compensate them until they're willing. Yeah. And the, one of the problems that we have is right now we don't have a lot of people who want to become a business owner. So there's also other options like ESOPs where you can set up, you know, an employee stock own plan where you can sell your company basically to the employees and delve it out like uh, Publix Mm -hmm. that rolled it out. Um, So there's lots of different vehicles. It really just depends on who your successors are, where you are as a business, the size of the business that you can transfer and um, really what's going to hold on to those key people and what are their goals? Who would a business owner contact to start that conversation? So let's say I wanted to bring in uh, a partner and I wanted to get a buy-in. Well, how much would that buy-in be? Who would do the valuation? Who would I go to to broach that conversation to find out what solution is appropriate? I would definitely start with my CPA. So Kirsch. (laughs) Well, I'm not even just saying that in passing because Mm -hmm. a lot of the times, even if I am not the um, foremost expert on, say, like a manufacturing company. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times we offer valuation services. And that's a great place to say, okay, what is the company worth? Because a lot of the times, I mean, let's just say that the business owners like to think that their businesses are worth $10 million when if you start penciling it all out, you're like, well, not quite. Mm-hmm. And then having that paper version of, okay, what can the company substantiate? What is the true valuation worth? And if I was going to sell it, how much should I sell it for, for an outside person? Because there might be a different higher value to sell it to an outside party, like a venture capital fund mm. versus an internal employee, because you're not going to have as many costs. You know, you're not gonna have as much due diligence. You're not gonna have as many transition problems, but I would start with the CPA to start gathering that advice and coming up with, okay, what would evaluation look like? What is a common multiple in this industry? What are the common ways to value this business? And then let's go a step further and say, what are our objectives? Who's buying into the company? How much um, value has that person brought to the company? So that way maybe you don't want to sell it for fair market value because this key employee has done so much over the years mm-hmm. that you don't want to sell it for that full value. So, so you could offer it as like an incentive, you know, like you could give, like that's where maybe stock options would come in. You, you could give a percentage of ownership every year. Yeah, yeah. No, I've even no. seen that with family members where, you know, they want their son to get into the business. So they mm-hmm. gift a portion of the revenue, I mean, of the stock to them over time, get them in the business, build them up or identify and train them to the specific functions that they're going to need to run the business when they're gone. Um, yeah, that's, that's a great idea. Now, I've got a, a follow up question to that, which is uh, 
ties into um, what Brent was saying earlier, how, how a lot of people uh, who don't properly reward their key employees lose them and they become competitors. Well, what happens when you make that step, that leap of faith, and you reward your business, uh, your key employee with ownership, and they decide to cut bait? You know, what happens then? So let's say I've uh, given... 5, 10, 15% ownership to this employee and now they're gone and they're, and, it, and it's a case of sour grapes where it's not a good situation. So what do you do then? Because I would imagine that's the main thing holding business owners back from sharing the ownership. It's like, okay, well, what if, what if this marriage dissolves? Yeah, absolutely. And the best thing that you can do is work with a lawyer. And I know I feel like I'm passing the buck a lot here, but um, I am not, you know, into the legalization of like buy sell agreements and how you're going to transfer your stocks. But if you have a good attorney while you're going through this process, they're going to be thinking about the end in mind, making sure that uh, heaven forbid, what if somebody dies? Right. Like they got to have a way to get that stock back that won't cripple the company with cash flow. So key man life insurance policies and stuff like that are great ways to bring in a partner and make sure that the key person who's there running the firm, like let's just say I'm going to buy, you know, a, a company that I want to eventually take over. And the main driver of that business is the founder, the, the main person who did that business. If anything happened to him without him transferring that information, the company would not be able to pay, you know, his estate, the true value of that company, and it wouldn't succeed as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so making sure that you have key man policies to save that key person from having an issue where if they do pass away, they have enough time and money to keep running the company, to go find a replacement for that CEO, and then have the managers and other key people who are going to take over find that you know missing piece in time is going to be important. And that all has to be part of your planning discussion up front before you bring in your partners, working with your CPA, your estate planner, and your lawyers to make sure that that's all incorporated to say what happens when this thing dissolves. What happens in a worst case scenario? What vehicles and tools do I need to have in place to protect myself so that if somebody decides to cut bait and leave, I can go and claw back that stock without having to say, get like a unanimous vote from all you know the shareholders so they can't block me, right? These are all things that businesses run into every day, not having those agreements in place, not having a really good lawyer thinking about the end in mind um, has led to the, you know, the detriment of lots of small businesses over time because they're just like, I know this guy. I've worked with him for 20 years. He would never do that. Mm-hmm. And then something changes in that person's life and then, you know, it turns sour. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, so in the, in the exit planning process for business owners, there's there's kind of a five step process. Step one, and I and I think this is interesting because a lot of business owners they're they're focused on what what ends up being step three, by the way, which is growth. Okay, but step one is about establishing. Step two, interestingly enough, is actually about protecting. You know, how do you take this established business? And make sure that you're looking at all these different holes. The one that we're focusing on today is, you know, how do I look at my employees and make sure that there's not a blind spot? It's not until step three that you actually talk about grow, right? And, and, and you know, where that line starts is, is interesting. But, you know, to your point, how many businesses got focused on grow and forget about protect along the way? And maybe it works for a handful of years maybe even a handful of decades. But 
inevitably there's something under the surface that's that's maybe not set, protected right, and and you could be stepping on a landmine. Is that a fair way to think about it? Absolutely. And you know, your first line of defense a lot of the times is the CPAs because they can kind of issue spot some of this. They kind of understand the operations a little bit, and just knowing when to raise a red flag and say, "Hey, client, I'm a little concerned." You know, you've grown a lot over the last couple of years. You know, when's the last time you've updated your operating agreement? Mm-hmm. When's the last time you've looked at your employee handbook? When's the last time you've talked to an attorney about, you know, exit strategy? And, you know, I have a lot of business owners that are on the five-year plan for, you know, 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get out in five years. But yeah. actually working with, you know, um, somebody that can help them with succession planning and consulting and really, you know, holding that sh- that owner accountable to a plan to a timeline to something that they can put goals into and actually meet those goals that's one of the things that differentiate holistic approach cpas that work with all these teams and bring everybody to the table and sees these red flags and gets them the consulting help to work with somebody having that organizational structure sets the corporate culture and that and that uh cascades down to the employees and and believe me when there's chaos at top there's chaos at the bottom now i would imagine that's one of the main reasons uh employees leave i don't know if that's if you can attest to that but just you know having a a toxic culture a lot of turnover um you know so what are some of the main reasons employees leave outside of what we just talked about yeah culture is huge um these days, flexibility is a big one. Mm-hmm. Whether it's you know you can work from home, you can go to four day work weeks, um, you can have options of full time work versus maybe you have a bunch of people who are part time workers, but they have some mix of benefits. These flexibility things are a great way to attract and retain people and give them you know work life balance. There's also communication. But that's probably one of the biggest things that I see as an issue in companies. They might have great intentions, but if they don't communicate to their teams where the company's headed, how their work and how what they do fits into the scope of what the business goals are, they just kind of assume that their employees know what their vision is and what the corporation, you know, how they value each person. But you have to be explicit with it and you have to be intentional with your communication and remind them on a regular basis that they are important and what they do is important and there's ways to advance. I think that's probably the biggest turnover right there is not that communication and not having a defined plan of how everybody fits in and where the company is going. And that kind of ties right into your culture and how people feel about their positions. Isn't, isn't there something to be said in this that what people really want is hope? I mean, they want to be able to feel hopeful about their future, you know, and and people really don't like the idea of of looking out into the 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 nebulous future and not feeling like there's any hope. And and I think a lot of what you just said seems to reflect that. Yeah, and that and that's reflected also in you know having a retirement plan, having health insurance, um, you know, advancement opportunities. uh, I would imagine would be huge. And that, that's part of the whole plan. You know, if you if you're I'm just thinking as a business owner here, like if I did a year in announcement, like the, the state of the business, you know, just just sent that out as a, a an employee men, memo. It's it's going to contain some form of growth mes- message like, hey, we want to get we are currently at a and we want to be to B, And here's how we're going to plan to get there. And part of that plan, you don't have to be explicit, but 
you you can imagine employees can be like, oh, I can be a part of that, you know, or I can do this. Well, or they're going to at least ask, how does this benefit me? That's yeah. the question they're going to ask. They're going to look at your email that talks about all the great growth you're going to have as a company, and they're going to say, okay, so what does that mean for me? That's true. Yeah, so, so you should address that and and whatever your plans are is how how it can benefit not just you as the owner but everyone. Yeah, their their hope isn't necessarily for your business. It's it's hope for their life. They want mm-hmm. you know, and 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 your goal as a business owner is not to string them along mm-hmm. on this hope. You want to communicate you know things that you can deliver on as my guess because you know you don't want to give somebody false hope. Um, you know that that I assume leads to you know potentially even bigger problems. Yeah, absolutely, and. Those aren't the only reasons why people leave. I mean, there's lots of other things out there. Like if you work with a lot of difficult clients, if you're overworking your team, you know, if you have a bad manager. Uh, I've heard it said that, you know, people don't leave their job. They leave their manager or their boss. Um, Feedback is also huge, right, for employees. If you have high-performing employees, just, you know, putting them in their station and telling them they're doing a great job is not enough. They want to know how to improve. They want to know how to get to the next level constant and consistent feedback and growth for those rock stars are also a huge thing that needs to happen within organizations so that they identify these people, retain these people and give them that feedback that they need and make sure that we're not overstressing them because usually the reward for doing a good job is more work. (laughs) So how do you, what kind of feedback should you provide a rock star employee? So is that just like an attaboy or attagirl or is that more, um, you know, financial or is it uh, an award? <laughs> what what is that? What does that feedback look like? Yes, and yes, and yes. But more importantly, mm-hmm. they really want to know what can they improve upon. Where can I take my skills to get to the next level? That's probably way more important than all the other things to them because they're very driven people. But yes, you want to monetize that to some mm-hmm. degree and compensate them. And yes, you do want to point out when they do a good job. But really what they crave is what's next because they want to challenge. They want to be challenged. They don't want to get bored in what they're doing. And if you don't identify that, they could leave simply from the fact that they're not being challenged enough and they're not getting those opportunities to grow. And those are the probably the, the people that you ideally want as decision makers at mm-hmm. the top of the business long term is those people that are craving you know that challenge as opposed to somebody that uh, would much rather have comfort and and no and less challenge yeah and i think the the grand scheme of things most business owners want to identify and find these people early on and groom them to be potential successors because i think at the end of the day most business owners don't always have the best defined plan of what succession looks like but the earlier you can identify and groom these people and people are going to leave. People are going to have changes of career. You can't avoid that. But the more people you can identify, the more people you can mentor, the more people you can grow into that and who are interested in potential in the long term, the better you know success plan you're going to have eventually turn that over. And they're going to help you grow your business in ways that you might not have thought of. Because if you have diversity and thought, you can have more ideas come to the table and a trusted group of advisors within your own organization who are able and willing to provide new ideas and new thoughts that are coming out in the industries and in technology that maybe the old business owners are not really focused on at that time. Yeah, just, just to just to drive that point about diversity and thought, I have heard, maybe you can confirm this, that from a valuation perspective, you actually, as a, as a business, can typically get a higher multiple 
if you have multiple owners versus one owner because of that. Is that right? Hmm. Well, it depends on your one owner, right? I mean, yeah. uh, there's some business owners out there that might do extremely well on their own, but typically that one business owner is supported by some group. I don't know a ton of business owners that don't seek advice. Well, but if I'm if I'm buying your company and you're the guy that may, why would I pay more for that? I know you're leaving, right? Maybe more it's like automation and process. Whatever I can you know, push down and grow through processes and, you know, training others to do what I do and having a large group of people behind me that can do my function is important to the selling and replacing of a business owner or a strategic move in the long term. But these are all things that you have to consider as you're developing your business on what you legacy you want to leave, how you want to structure it and what your end sale game is, because that's going to determine the structure you take to get there. Multiple partners sometimes can be a great thing. Sometimes having too many uh, cooks in the kitchen is a bad thing too. So it really depends on the service industry you're in and it really depends on, you know, how nimble your company has to be too. So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, it's really more about how your business is systematized and maybe a part of that has to do with multiple owners because it's a little less owner dependent, but you know, not always the case. Correct, yeah. because sometimes you really just need that one person to make the decision, and maybe they're a smaller company and they don't want to grow to 50 employees. Maybe they want to keep it at a small 20-person business that's very substantial, and they could just package it up and sell it off to some big corporation later on who can absorb it. Yeah. And then other people's goals might be to grow to that you know, $100 million mark and then exit the business. It really depends on what the business owner's plan is and what they really want to accomplish. And more importantly, it's understanding what their goals are and listening to their pain points and listening to what their goals are and then helping them achieve that. There's many different roads to take and there's many different opportunities to take to exit a business. But having the team that knows your goals, knows your business, really understands what you're trying to accomplish and working with good advisors is really going to be the key that differentiates your services and grows your business as well as theirs. Hmm. Well, come full circle here because we've covered a lot of topics. Um, something that fascinates me, and this is more applicable to the soldiers, not to the um, key employees, which is kind of what we've been discussing up to this point, is the um, the process of discovery when it comes to uh, appropriate compensation for the for the soldier workers. You know, um, you know the the rank and file, so to speak. So. Is there a resource that business owners can use? Like you, you've heard of Glassdoor and other, uh, I, I've never used these websites. I'm just familiar with them. Like, or is there a resource to find out, okay, what is a competitive rate for, you know, for, for a roofer? What is a competitive rate for an RN? What is a competitive rate for um, an administrative assistant? So forth and so on. How do you advise a business owner approach that? Um well, typically, I, I don't advise them on how to pay their employees because yeah. that boy is that that's a sticky discussion point. However, there are some great marketing tools. I mean, thanks to the internet, things are so public nowadays that you can look up just about anything online. Mm. Uh, for instance, like in the accounting world, we have Robert Half. Not only do they publish the salary guides of the market rates for um, accountants, but they also do it by region. So like if you're in New York, your salary is going to be different than if you're in Alabama, right? Because the cost of living is so much different. So these things are very market based. 
And there are a ton of resources in a ton of different industry groups, and they all kind of have their own benchmarking that they do. And I know like in our internal team, you know, they look at those benchmarks and say, hey, what are our salary ranges? Are, our, are we keeping our people not, you know, only at the median level, but are we paying them a little bit more to make sure that we're keeping and attracting new people against our competitors? Because we know what this market is paying for like labor. And keeping on top of that is very important because if you are not paying attention to what your labor market is doing, I guarantee that your employees are and they're talking to their buddies and they're talking to other people and they're going to go out and say, well, if I can make $10 more an hour over here because my boss isn't in, in tune with this, they will go out and start having those interviews. So is it Robert Half driving the accountant's salaries or is it the accountant's, the market driving the, the data that Robert Half is uh, put, uh, it's absolutely producing. the market. It's yeah. the supply demand. I, I think mean, about that sometimes with these resources, like Zillow, for example. I know that's completely off on a tangent, but is it Zillow driving the prices on the houses, or is is are the is it the market driving the prices on Zillow? What's your thought on that, Brent? Curious. You look like you have a thought on it. Well, they they didn't succeed in uh, the business model of trying to buy houses and resell them. That's true. They they, yeah. they lasted all about I don't even know well, how long that lasted. Sorry it wasn't I got very us, long. I'm sorry I got <laughs> us off on that tangent, but I would, it's a topic that fascinates me because you know how do you determine the the worth of someone? You know, it's such a difficult thing, and it's such an awkward conversation to have. Um, Oh yeah, but it's 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 critical because it's, it's not the whole reason people are there. I think people just generally need to have meaning in their lives, and there's a lot of meaning to be found in work, regardless of what it is. Whether you're you know sweeping floors as a janitor, or you're you know in the top tier, like you're an astronaut with NASA, you know you, you're going to find meaning and uh, work, and you know so people would I think generally you know if we lived in Star Trek world. They would work for free, uh, but we don't live in that reality. Um, oh. So, so there there has to be a, a consideration, monetary consideration involved as well. So, anyway, um, just to recap on your your um, advice, there is you do not give advice on salaries. You just you should just be familiar with the market and just offer a competitive rate, and then um, and then on top of that, you know, um, offer at minimum um, health insurance. And a retirement plan with a with a modest match, like a safe harbor retirement uh, plan. And then for key employees, uh, we also discussed um, adding things like you know uh, ownership, maybe an ESOP. Um, I've also heard the term phantom equity. What is that? Well, phantom equity is um, kind of a way where you don't have to give away like ownership shares of a stock, mm-hmm. but you can give away a profit's interest in your business. So, for instance, if I have an LLC or something where I've got flexibility on how I distribute my um, income and my distributions, I can give them, I mean, you could do it within other types of corporations as well, but you can give them a profits interest without giving them an ownership vote. Or you can use a second class of equity sometimes, like a preferred or something where you don't get voting rights in like a C corporation, but you can give them some sort of a return and way to buy into the company and actually get part of the profits as, you know, a guaranteed return in different structures. Is there a tax incentive to do that versus uh, profit sharing? Hmm. It seems kind of similar to me. It's pretty similar. I mean, you're going to get benefit 
uh, mostly from the retention and for mm-hmm. the opportunity for your key employees to be there. I mean, you're going to get some sort of, you know, a tax incentive in the fact that you're not picking up all the profits as yourself anymore, but you're also taking on that risk of that employee, you know, leaving or changing uh, their desires. But I think that they're pretty comparable when it comes to, you know, the tax benefits of having phantom stock versus a normal just ownership interest. Well, there, there is so many different things. Uh, you have so many good ideas and how to, how to, keep and retain uh, talent and I appreciate you coming in and talking with us about this stuff today. Look forward to our next discussions. Uh, we've got a lot to cover. Um, Brent, do you have anything to add or ask Anthony that we got him on the topic of labor? Really appreciate you coming in today. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. for having me. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisory services offered through National Wealth Management Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from LPL Financial, LLC. The opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. This information is not intended as authoritative guidance or tax or legal advice. You should consult with your attorney or tax advisor for guidance for your specific situation. Anthony Lewis is not affiliated with LPL Financial. Brent Gargano is not affiliated with LPL Financial. The content shared in this podcast by Kirsch CPA Group is based on their own experiences, research, and opinions, and it may not be suitable as professional or expert advice. We highly recommend consulting with qualified experts or professionals when making important decisions relating to the topics we discuss. Your individual circumstances and needs may vary, and what works for one person may not necessarily work for another.